The Crimopedia podcast is a completely independent show that explores content of a potentially violent and disturbing nature. Please use your listening discretion. Hi everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Crimopedia podcast. Forgive me here as I still try to find my footing with the show amidst some really dramatic changes in my personal life. It's been difficult, but I'm, I'm so grateful to always be able to come back to this show and be welcomed with open arms by my listeners. I feel very much at peace sitting here by myself in my room being able to record these episodes for you, and so thank you again, as I always say, for continuing to listen. Today, we're going to be talking about the mystery of the Sauter family fire back on Christmas Eve, 1945, in West Virginia, United States. When only four out of the nine children residing in the Sauter family home the night of the fire were able to escape, and the other five disappeared with no trace left behind, the Sauter family were left searching for answers for decades. And none of this is even to mention that certainly unusual circumstances surrounding the night of the fire spawning what was effectively perfect breeding grounds for news media to speculate about conspiracies until the natural deaths of all surviving family members. Special disclaimer for today's episode, as it involves the deaths, or maybe not, of young children. But if you're still on board with me, then today we'll visit 1945 Industrial West Virginia, nearby the town of Fayetteville, when George and Jenny Sauter lost five children on December 24th, 1945. But first, our story starts in Italy in 1895. So with that, let's jump right in. George Sauter, who would eventually become the patriarch of this family, was born in 1895 in Tula, Sardinia, Italy, a small town on one of the Italian islands just west of the mainland. For reasons unknown, and that George never seemed to speak about during his life, he left the island at only 13 years old with an older brother of his, and traversed the Atlantic Ocean to settle in the United States. His brother would end up leaving George in the USA and returning home, also for reasons unknown. But George stayed, committed to building himself a life in the Americas. His journey to independence in the United States really started in Pennsylvania on the railroads, working there for a little while before eventually relocating to West Virginia for what was more stable work, the coal mines. If you were a coal miner or could work alongside them in any capacity, you would do well in West Virginia, as the industry there boomed pretty quickly after the discovery of bountiful bituminous coal back in 1742. George Sauter was no exception, and he was able to establish working adjacent to the coal mining industry in trucking, eventually starting his own company in Smithers, West Virginia. While he was there, he met his soon-to-be wife, Jenny Cipriani. Jenny was the daughter of a local store owner and was an Italian immigrant herself, which was something her and George bonded over. She had been in the United States for longer, though, immigrating from Italy when she was only three years old. But regardless, however they bonded and however their love story turned out to be the way it did, it didn't actually take very long for them to become official, to get married, and to relocate to a two-story timber frame home just north of Fayetteville off of Highway 16, and eventually have 10 children of their own between 1923 and 1943. The first child that was born to George and Jenny Sauter was John, 
and he was born in September of 1923. Shortly after, then came Joseph in 1924, Marion in 1926, George Jr. in 1929, Maurice in 1931, Martha in 1933, Jenny Jr. in 1934, Louis in 1935, Betty in 1940, and baby Sylvia in 1942. All the while, as the Sauter family continued to grow, George's trucking company also gained success, as the Sauter family quickly grew a local reputation for being pretty wholesome. They were sort of like rural white picket fence-like with a barn, a big house, lots of kids and some animals, and they were very hardworking, very classical, all-American. And this didn't really change as the years went on. Certainly fitting the bill was their second oldest son, Joseph's, departure to fight in World War II. They were proud of their roots, but also proud of their country. They were proud of their jobs and proud of the lives they had built for themselves. And it definitely showed, and their reputation certainly reflected it. At least, the glowing opinion of the Sauter family was the opinion of most, but notably not all. In 1945, the Sauter family began having strange encounters, seemingly in a crescendo-like manner, ultimately culminating in the Christmas Eve fire. These strange occurrences seemed to have started in early 1945, when a life insurance salesperson arrived at the Sauter family home while doing door-to-door work. Something of note here is that, like the Sauter family, much of Fayetteville at this time where they lived was comprised of Italian immigrants or their direct descendants, and so was this salesperson. If you know anything about European history around this time period, you'll know that 1945 is the year that the Second World War would end, as would the ruling of Italian dictator and leader of the National Fascist Party in Italy, Benito Mussolini. Mussolini would be summarily executed in April of 1945, meaning that he was executed really without a fair trial, but that was warranted to many. It was evident, though, that his execution did not occur without stirring up ongoing political discourse and deep associated feelings with people across the world. George Sauter, in particular, as an Italian immigrant himself, had choice words about the rulings of Mussolini, cursing his agenda and the ways in which he sought to rule the nation. These choice words were reportedly some that George had a bit of a hard time keeping to himself, even when seemingly random or inappropriate. And when they came out during a conversation with this life insurance salesperson, the salesperson allegedly cursed George with threats, warning that his house would go up in smoke and that his children would be destroyed due to the quote-unquote dirty remarks he was making about Mussolini's rule. In the fall of 1945, Another man had ended up at the front doorstep of the Sauter family home, this time seeking work as opposed to selling anything, and while wandering around to the back of the timber frame structure, he noted two fuse boxes and said to George, quote, this is going to cause a fire someday. There's really no other details or clarification about this incident. Was there anything else said? Why did he think the fuse boxes were problematic? Did he ever end up working for George Sauter? How did he even get himself to the back of the house? All we know is that at the end of this encounter, George certainly thought it was odd. One, because it was random, and two, because this was the second person now who had implied that George's family was doomed to suffer a fire. As weird as it was, however, George didn't necessarily take it very seriously, because he had just had the house rewired for installation of an electric stove, and everything electrical had been looked over. And so really, he didn't think he had anything to worry about. 
What was even more strange leading up to the fire of 1945 was that after those two encounters, in the weeks just before Christmas of that year, George's older sons noticed a strange car parked along the main Highway 16 nearby their home. Some reports note this highway as Highway 21. I'm not sure if the name has been changed since 1945 or if the highway numerical system has changed, but anyways, now it's Highway 16. I note this specifically because there are only a few major roadways that pass through Fayetteville. There's Highway 16, also known as Beckwith Road, which runs essentially north-south through the entire town of Fayetteville. And there's also U.S. Route 19, which runs from the southwest corner of Fayetteville into the northeast direction. And mind you, the Sodders lived directly off of Highway 16, but it was pretty remote. They didn't live directly in Fayetteville, but just north of it. Not far from the main town, but not necessarily within walking distance. All this is to say that a car parked on the side of the road would have certainly been noticeable and odd. But even further is that this car, or I suppose whoever was driving it, didn't seem to be doing anything except just watching the Sodder children as they left and returned from school, played outside, and went about their daily lives. However odd these encounters may have been, the Sodder family pressed on, continuing about their, by all accounts, successful lives, preparing for the upcoming Christmas holiday, as well as the eventual return of Joseph Sodder from Europe now that the Second World War had finally ended. The Sauter family wouldn't necessarily piece together the strangeness of these encounters that they had had throughout 1945, until much after the events of Christmas Eve were over, and about half of their family unit had vanished, seemingly into thin air. On the night of Christmas Eve, Marion, the oldest daughter, who was 19 at the time, had been working at a local dime store. If you don't know what a dime store is, because I didn't, it's essentially the equivalent of today's dollar store, but even better because the maximum value for items at a dime store is a dime, or 10 cents. Whereas today, as I'm pretty sure we've all experienced, the price of previously $1 items in the dollar store tends to rise dramatically every single year. Anyways, before returning home, she had decided to grab a few things from her work for her younger sisters as presents. For Martha, who was 12, for Jenny Jr., who was 8, and for Betty, who was only 5. When Marion made it back home, she was excited to gift her sisters some new toys, and they were equally as excited to receive them. So excited that around 10 p.m. that evening, they had collectively asked their mom, Jenny Sauter, if they could stay up past their bedtime to play with the new toys they had just received. According to Jenny, she said that this was fine, so long as their brothers, Maurice, who was 14, and Louis, who was 9, put the cows that the family had in the family barn, and that they ensured that the chickens were fed before they went off to bed themselves. Ecstatic, the girls went about their evening with their new toys, and Jenny took Sylvia, the youngest solder child who was only two at the time, and went to bed upstairs, thinking that her children would take care of the chores, and all was well. At this time, George Sauter and the two oldest boys who were still at home, John and George Jr., had already been fast asleep as they had accompanied their dad for a full days of work that day. Joseph, who was between the ages of John and George Jr., would have likely done the same, but his absence was still noted this Christmas, as he was still overseas. In fact, he was only discharged a day before, and he was still waiting to travel home. The girls did as they intended and stayed up late, and the younger boys knew to attend to the Sauter family's animals, and the rest had turned in for the evening. It's sort of unclear from my reading 
and it seems that many true crime media creators have taken a stab at guessing the layout of the Sauter house, but I'm going to try and spell it out for you, where all the members of the family were located at this time. From what I understand, the two-story timber frame home that the Sauter family lived in had bedrooms upstairs, but most of the younger children typically slept in an attic area, which was accessible by staircase. The rest of the family, meaning Jenny and some of the older kids and George, slept on the upper level of the house, and the living room and the kitchen were located on the main floor, where Jenny would eventually wake to find Marianne. But until that point, between about 10 p.m. when she went to bed and 12.30 a.m. when she was awoken, the house and the story goes dark. At 12.30 in the morning, Jenny Sauter was awoken by the house telephone ringing, which, if you have ever received a phone call in the middle of the night, you'll know oftentimes that it's not typically good news. And so, without hesitating, Jenny went downstairs to go answer the telephone, likely expecting the worst, but being met with yet another strange encounter. The caller on the other end of the line was a woman, according to Jenny, whose voice she did not recognize, and the woman was asking for a name that Jenny also did not recognize. Jenny reported that she could hear laughter and what sounded like clinking glasses in the background, and so she figured it was likely a case of a wrong number and said this to the woman on the phone before hanging up and returning to bed. But she didn't retreat back to her bed before noticing that all of the lights in the house were still on and that the curtains in the front room were not drawn, which were two things in addition to the cows and chickens that the children who went to bed after the parents were typically responsible for, and they knew that. Given what was, I'm sure, simply a case of weird vibes that Jenny picked up on, she decided to look around the main floor of the house, likely feeling some semblance of something's not right, but not being able to place her finger on exactly what. Whether she was looking for assurance that everything was fine or an explanation as to what the hell was going on and why the lights were on, it didn't matter because instead, Jenny found Marion, her eldest daughter, fast asleep on the couch in the living room by herself and not in her bed. At this time, Jenny must have thought that the other kids had simply went up to bed without checking in with Marion, maybe thinking that she was still up and would handle the lights and the curtains. Or possibly Marion went to sleep thinking the kids would handle those chores as that was the expectation, but not wanting to leave them alone in the house necessarily, and so she didn't retreat upstairs to her bedroom. Whatever the case was, it was certainly strange to find Marion on the couch, but not strange enough to be unexplained, and so Jenny brushed it off, attended to the lights and the curtains herself, and went back to bed. Not a half an hour later, at approximately one in the morning, Jenny Sauter was once again woken up from her sleep. This time, however, Jenny was not awoken by the telephone, but by instead the sound of an object hitting their rooftop, making a banging noise, followed by what sounded like the object rolling down the roof. Again, this is super odd, but I can only imagine that in such a daze, Jenny probably didn't think much of it in the moment, and so she went back to sleep again. But not for long. Another half hour later, at approximately 1.30 in the morning, Jenny woke up to the smell of smoke. This time, although I'm sure still in a daze, she felt compelled to investigate, just as she had done when the telephone rang. Upon doing so, Jenny discovered that the room that her husband, George, used as his office space was burning from a rapidly spreading fire, 
seeming to originate nearby the home telephone. In a panic, Jenny awoke her husband, who subsequently woke up their two sons, John and George Jr., who he was sleeping nearby. By the time they had come to, the fire had already spread and effectively engulfed the staircase leading up into the attic space where the other five children were still sleeping. But now, they were trapped. Jenny, George, John, Marion, who was on the couch still, George Jr., and baby Sylvia, who was grabbed by Jenny, knew that they were all soon to meet the same fate if they didn't move quickly. So instead of trying to traverse the flames and up the staircase, they escaped the house, making as much noise as they possibly could in hopes of waking the other children. Now I'll take a moment here to note that there are some conflicting reports about John, the eldest son's next moves. In early interviews, he initially told law enforcement that he was able to successfully get up the stairs into the attic space and see the children, trying to wake them up before it was simply too dangerous for him to be up there. However, in later reports, he recanted his story, stating that he did not go up the staircase. It's hard to say why he did this or which version of the events are true. Some say if he lied about going up the stairs, it could be that it was a byproduct of survivor's guilt. But regardless, keep this in mind, because whether or not anyone was able to lay eyes on all five children trapped in the attic before the rest of the family escaped will become very, very important. By the time the escapees had managed to get outside of their burning home, even stranger things started happening. Firstly, was the rapid speed at which the house was burning, which in total concluded in only about 45 minutes. In hindsight, a fire this quick isn't necessarily unexpected for a timber frame structure, which is what the Sauter family lived inside. However, the family hardly had time to react before their entire livelihoods were reduced to ash. Given these circumstances, you would think that the first response would be expedited. But weirdly, first responders didn't arrive to the scene until the next morning. We'll get to that, but within the short 45-minute window of time that the house was ablaze, Everything that the Sauter family could have done to rescue their five children stuck in the attic had mysteriously stopped working one way or another. For example, their telephone was not working, which is not necessarily unexpected, given where Jenny had seen the fire originating from. But when Marion ran up the road to a neighbor's house to call for help, the Fayetteville Fire Department could not be reached on account of the operator being weirdly unavailable. This was also the case for a passing-by truck who also attempted to call the fire department, unsuccessfully. While Marion was off trying to seek help, George Sauter sprung into action to try and save his children. At least, he made some honest attempts at it. He was able to successfully scale his house from the outside and break the window that led into the room where the other children were sleeping, cutting himself in the process. However, when he got down to grab a ladder that he would hopefully lead the children down, a ladder that, for as long as anyone could remember, was always reliably leaning up against the side of the home, it was nowhere to be found. Then, when he went to reach for a barrel of water that was beside the house to try and extinguish some of the flames around that window, it had been frozen solid. In December of 1945, according to the Democrat and Chronicle database of weather, West Virginia was experiencing a mild winter. When he couldn't find his ladder and realized that he couldn't rely on being able to use it, George instead elected to use one of his work trucks to get himself in a position where he could access the attic window and rescue his children. However, when he went to start it, 
it wouldn't. And so he tried one of his other work trucks, which also wouldn't start, despite working fine really only hours prior, as himself and his two sons had been working all day the day before using those trucks. Regarding the fire department, it would come out later that the Fayetteville Fire Department was low on manpower that evening, due to the very recently ended war, thus having them rely upon individual firefighters to call each other and mobilize to fight fires. Further, Fayetteville Fire Chief F.J. Morris would go on to say, once he arrived the next morning, that the already slow response was exacerbated because, even though he was awake and ready to respond and is the fire chief, he can't drive the fire truck, and so he had to wait for somebody who could. I'm not exactly sure what this means, why he can't drive the fire truck, but regardless, the stars had been perfectly aligned to ensure the Sutter children did not have a fighting chance against that fire. Beyond frustrated and hopeless, the six surviving family members could do effectively nothing but stand at the side of the road and watch their house collapse after 45 minutes with their children still inside. Maurice, Martha, Louie, Jenny Jr., and Betty were all presumed to be dead. However, although for the coming months, overwhelming grief consumed the entire family, it would be interrupted with moments of uncertainty about the fate of those children, if they really did vanish in that fire. Because weirdly, when first responders finally arrived to the scene, they concluded that there was no evidence of any of the children's skeletal remains. At the time, given the intensity of the fire and the gravity of the loss, the surviving Sauter family accepted that their children had died and that there was no way to recover any pieces of them. In that moment, it was not unimaginable that the five children had been lost to the flames. The next morning, when the fire department finally did arrive to the scene, Chief Morris urged George and Jenny to leave the site undisturbed, given that the West Virginia State Fire Marshal's office was intending to conduct a more thorough investigation. But after four days of waiting and seeing the ashes of their entire lives scattered all over the north side of Fayetteville, George couldn't contain his grief and elected instead to bulldoze approximately a meter and a half of dirt over the pile of ashes that remained in place at their home. Him and his wife's intention was to make it a memorial site, which is exactly what they did, one that they attended to again until the natural deaths of all remaining family members. The day after George bulldozed the site, a local coroner convened a juror's inquest into the cause of the fire, which was concluded to be, at the time, as a result of faulty wiring, similar to what that one strange man who had appeared at the Sauter home looking for work had warned George about months prior. Weirdly, though, one of the jurors in the inquest was that other weird guy that showed up at the Sauter house, the salesman, the one who had gotten into an argument with George about his feelings regarding Mussolini and had subsequently threatened George with a house fire and the loss of his children. But again, at this point, it seems from my reading that the Sauter family had sort of been accustomed to strange circumstances happening around them. As a result, at the time, it might have just been easier to ignore some of the imperfectly fitted puzzle pieces when there was a loss on their hands of such magnitude. Given that, there was no contest to the death certificates for each of the five children being issued on December 30th, just a few days after the fire, which stated that they all either died from the fire or suffocation from smoke inhalation. 
Similarly, there was no contest to a funeral that was held for the children the following January of 1946, although George and Jenny themselves didn't attend, due to being simply inconsolable. It was when their grief started to become more manageable, and the Sodders were able to start thinking clearly for the first time, that they had begun to question the circumstances surrounding the night of the fire. George and Jenny Sodder wondered why, if the fire had burned through their fuse box as a result of faulty wiring, that their Christmas lights remained on and visible for the large duration of the fire. They wondered about that latter, especially when, sometime later, the family was able to find it, about 75 feet or 23 meters away, tossed into an embankment. They didn't understand how it was possible when they found out that the fire was not actually what rendered their home telephone unusable, but it was the fact that the phone line had been cut from the outside by someone who scaled a 14-foot or about 4.5-meter pole and reached about 2 feet or a half meter across to cut it. They didn't understand why George's work trucks suddenly weren't starting when, again, they had both been in working condition only technically hours prior to the fire. They started thinking about the weird phone call Jenny got that night, and even the fact that the lights were still on when Jenny was awoken for it, and that the curtains were not drawn, which the children, again, knew that they were responsible for. They thought about how there was zero evidence of the children's remains at the scene. Despite it being a fire, it didn't go on for long enough to get hot enough to completely obliterate all traces of five whole human beings, right? They may have started to possibly wonder, were the lights and the curtains indicative of the children never even being in the house in the first place? They didn't make it back inside so they didn't turn the lights off? Is it possible that while playing with their new toys that evening, something had happened to the soldered children and they had been taken, and that they might be still alive? These questions, amongst many others, were running through the minds of the surviving Sauter family members, especially the total lack of evidence that the children had burned up in the fire. To them, it was strange that many of the household appliances were identifiable after the fire, along with fragments of their roof, and so why not bones? Jenny was specifically bothered about the lack of physical evidence at the scene proving that her children had died in the fire, and wondered about the possibility that they were still alive. She recalled a series of other recent house fires, including one that killed a family of seven not long before the Sauter family fire. However, in that case, skeletal remains belonging to each of the family members were identified. So why not her children? Why not in her house? Jenny wanted to test the theory herself, that her children's remains were completely obliterated by a 45-minute fire, so she firstly attempted to reduce animal bones to ashes with her own fire, but was unsuccessful. Then, she went on to contact a local crematorium who informed her that human bones tended to remain at least partially intact, even after being subjected to over a thousand degrees Celsius of heat, which is about 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit, for up to two hours, which is notably much hotter and much longer than the Sauter family fire. However, with no evidence really left behind to continue examining, the Sodders had no choice but to simply follow through with their plans to turn the site into a memorial for their children. In the springtime of 1946, they planted flowers in the soil that was bulldozed over the house's remains. 
Again, as I had mentioned, specifically Jenny would go on to tend to these flowers and the rest of her memorial site for the rest of her natural life. But through their grief and all the ways they tried to manage it, the Sauter family still couldn't shake the feeling that they were possibly memorializing children who were out there somewhere. In early 1946, a bus driver who had been passing through Fayetteville the evening of the fire said that he had seen, quote, some people throwing balls of fire at the house. A few months later, in the spring, around the same time the Sauters were memorializing their children, Sylvia, the youngest Sauter, had found a small, solid, dark green sort of rubber ball-like object in a nearby forested area. If you remember, Jenny Sauter was woken up around 1am the night of the fire, but a half an hour before it started, to the sound of a thump on the roof and what sounded like rolling, shortly before the fire began to rage. According to the family, the object Sylvia found looked similar to some type of hand grenade or an incendiary device, and that the fire, according to them, likely started on the roof, despite the fire marshal concluding that it was a result of the fuse box's faulty wiring. If this is true, and to be honest, I have not been able to find any photos of this device online, it would substantiate the family's claims that this fire very well may have been set intentionally and not as a result of faulty wiring. We'll get to that, but further, it adds weight to the theory that someone or some people had possibly abducted the children or lured them away from the house, using the fire as a cover-up. Ignoring the fact that Jenny was not awoken by a boom from a hand grenade, but possibly buying into the fact that it was some sort of incendiary device that someone had seen being thrown at the Sauter family roof, further fueling their feelings of uncertainty about the fate of their children, the family was compelled by witness statements that continued to roll in in the following years, where people were claiming to have seen the Sauter children in various places around West Virginia. One woman, who was watching the ordeal unfold from down the main road, reported that she had seen the children peering out of a passing car while the house was burning. Another woman would come forward sometime later, and said that she had served the children breakfast at a local rest stop just between Fayetteville and Charleston, West Virginia, which are about an hour away from each other, and oddly, she noted the presence of a car with Florida license plates at the restaurant that morning. Another woman who ran a hotel in Charleston reported that, once she had seen the photos of the Sauter children in the local newspaper, that she had recalled seeing them at the hotel, being accompanied by two men and two women, all of Italian descent. According to her, although she didn't remember the exact date, the entire party of five children and four adults stayed in one large hotel room with several beds. She said that they registered for their room around midnight, and when she had tried to make conversation with the children, one of the men became hostile and started speaking in Italian to the rest of the group, resulting in the children remaining silent for the rest of their interaction. Further, according to her, the entire group checked out of the hotel the very next morning, without a word. Given these ongoing developments, the Sauter family hired a private investigator named C.C. Tinsley, who worked out of the nearby, very small town of Gully Bridge, just north of Fayetteville. Tinsley is the one who informed the family that one of the men who was sitting on the juror's inquest was in fact the same one who had threatened George with a fire and the death of his children over his comments about Mussolini. Further, he was also able to uncover a series of rumors around Fayetteville, 
that stated that Fire Chief Morris had actually found a human heart amongst the ashes of fire, despite reporting to the family that during their searches of the scene, there had been no evidence of human remains. When confronted with this information, Chief Morris actually confessed to burying a human heart amongst the dirt and the ashes, but then when he showed them where it was located and it was taken to a local funeral director, it was determined not to be a heart at all, nor human, but it was in fact a beef liver that was fresh and had never been exposed to the fire. As an aside, I have interesting thoughts about this part of the story and some choice words for Chief Morris about doing this. To say it's bizarre is an understatement. But according to reports online, Chief Morris had hoped that by doing so, the family would find some sort of organ-resembling object and seeing that it looked like human remains might have satisfied them enough to halt their continued efforts at investigating. To some, evidently to Chief Morris, their inability to accept the possible truth that their children disappeared in the fire and were not still alive was just painful to watch. But unfortunately, burying a beef liver, in my opinion, was super not the right thing to do here, especially allowing such a thing to escape to the rumor mill only to be circulated back to the Sauter family. Even more unfortunately, for those who thought the Sauter's investigative efforts were hard to watch, and for those who were close to the family who could see the emotional toll the whole ordeal was taking on them, the Sauters continued to chase down every single lead that they received about their children's possible whereabouts. And I can only imagine that the drive to do so was only exacerbated after it came out that Chief Morris did not, in fact, find an organ, and that it was still true that there were no remains at the scene. This drive to find answers took George Sauter all the way from Fayetteville, West Virginia, to New York City to visit a ballet dance school after seeing a photo of a dancer who he thought resembled his daughter Betty, who was trapped in the attic, a little too closely. Upon attending the school, he demanded to see the girl, which was denied, but not before he put up quite a fight about it. George would also go on to try and solicit the help of the FBI, or the Federal Bureau of Investigation, in the United States, in investigating what he undoubtedly came to believe was a kidnapping, where the fire was simply a cover-up. However, the FBI director at the time, J. Edgar Hoover, personally responded to George's numerous letters, telling him that simply the case does not fall into their jurisdiction, and that there was simply nothing they could do. According to J. Edgar Hoover, it would be a different story if the local authorities of Fayetteville had invited the FBI to investigate, but they frustratingly declined to do so. Again, likely because everybody in the proximity to the Sauters had accepted the fate of the children when the Sauters could not. But this did not mean that George gave up hope. In 1949, he was able to convince a pathologist from Washington, D.C., Dr. Oscar Hunter, to supervise a new search of the site through the dirt that he had bulldozed over where the house had burned. I hadn't mentioned this to you yet, but it would come out eventually that the search that the Fayetteville Fire Department conducted on the morning that they arrived to the scene was quote-unquote cursory at best. According to my reading, the efforts to search for remains or any evidence about where the fire started were minimal, which may have fed into the Sauters believing that it was possible Chief Morris did find a heart and hid it, and that there may be more remains yet to be discovered. Whether or not it would have been a good outcome for the Sauters to find remains, 
Unfortunately, it didn't matter, because the second search, supervised by Dr. Hunter, was reportedly also not very thorough. However, the accounts of this search being subpar are much fewer and far between than the similar reports I found about the first one. Anyways, I digress, but it's important to keep in mind that the cards were continuously being stacked against the Stoddard family during their searches for answers about their potentially missing and or deceased children. This in itself makes details such as what I'm about to tell you next even more devastating, as glimpses of hope did nothing but to serve as torment to Jenny and George and the surviving children again until their natural deaths. So despite also possibly being a cursory search, uncovered during this second search were several small bone fragments, unearthed from beneath ash, char, and again that large dirt pile that George had placed over the site years prior. These bone fragments were sent to an anthropologist at the Smithsonian Institution for Analysis, someone named Marshall T. Newman. As an aside, when I looked into Mr. Newman, his CV is very impressive. He certainly knew what he was doing when he was looking at fragments. According to him, he was able to determine that the bone fragments found at the scene were in fact human, and they were confirmed to be pieces of lumbar vertebrae, or pieces of the spine from a human from nearby the bottom of it. Even further, in his report, he stated that these bone fragments were all determined to have come from the same person, who Marshall positioned to be approximately 16 to 17 years old, with a maximum age of 22, given the fusion of certain pieces of bone which are normal between 16 to 22, and the lack of fusion of other pieces of bone which often occur at age 23. Although initially it seemed to be a promising discovery, if you recall, the missing children were between the ages of 5 and 14 years old, with Betty being the youngest and Maurice being the oldest of the children who were gone. Although Newman's report did note that it was not entirely impossible that the vertebrae could have belonged to a boy about 14 years of age, as there were, you know, are always outliers, the report also stated that the bones showed no signs of exposure to fire. It was determined that, more than likely, the pieces of bone discovered during this second search were moved onto the site from the dirt that George had bulldozed over the site years prior. Given this finding, and of course the obligatory investigation following to determine who this person was whose bones were found scattered at the remains of the Sauter family home, it was later concluded that the fragments likely came from an individual buried in a nearby cemetery but it could never be explained as to how they ended up anywhere near the fire site. But regardless, it wasn't one of the Sauter children. Marshall Newman ends his report of his investigation by agreeing with Jenny Sauter's earlier feelings of suspicion, answering some questions, but truly opening the door for more. He agreed that it was very strange that the bones found at the scene were the only ones there, and that they didn't belong to a solder child, since a wood-fueled fire of such a short duration should have, in theory, left behind full skeletons, if nothing else, of all five children. Frustratingly, now in 2024, with the advent of incredible technology, although if I'm being honest, I'm not exactly sure what could be done further with these bone fragments, it doesn't matter that they were once important potential pieces of evidence, as their location as of today is unknown. After Marshall Newman's report was released, American media picked up on the story nationwide, which put pressure on the West Virginia legislature to hold two hearings about the case in 1950, five years after the fire, on account of the public perception that something in the case was very, very wrong, and if nothing else, 
extremely odd. However, the West Virginia governor at the time, Oki Patson, as well as the state police, produced a joint statement to the Sauter family that their case was quote-unquote hopeless, and thus was not to be further investigated at the state level. But just because the state police denied them, and the FBI denied them, and there were no longer any law enforcement agencies prepared to take on their case, that doesn't mean the Sauter family gave up hope for resolution. Until their deaths, the Sauter family insisted on continuous efforts to find answers. They always had flyers of their children printed out on hand, and eventually put up a $10,000 reward for information that would settle the case of even one of their children. The Sauter family eventually put up a billboard at the site of their home, which eventually became a landmark for traffic traveling through Fayetteville along Highway 16, and another billboard was erected along United States Highway Route 60 near the town of Anstead, West Virginia, which receives quite a bit of traffic as this highway runs almost effectively coast to coast. George Sauter continued to follow up on leads as he received them, traveling to areas where they originated from to investigate himself and there were many of them. George went from West Virginia to St. Louis, Missouri, to Texas, to Florida, and again to New York City, amongst other places in the search for his children. However, each of these leads were disproved, or they were unable to be substantiated, and some evidence satisfied George more than others. Some continued to bother him even though he did follow up, as he had no help from any law enforcement agency at any jurisdictional level. There was one lead that came in in 1967, two decades after the fire had taken place, that seemed to be one of the only ones that didn't have any circumstantial doubt surrounding it. This piece of evidence, this lead, was a letter, and it was addressed to Jenny, postmarked from Central City, Kentucky, United States, but with no return address. Inside of the envelope addressed to her, Jenny found a photo of a young man, looking approximately age 30, who, according to the family, strongly resembled their son, Louis. If you recall, Louis was only nine years old at the time of the Sauter family fire, which was 22 years prior to the family receiving the letter. So, if this was a recent photo of Louis and it was real, the math, at least, was adding up quite nicely. On the back of the photograph, there was a handwritten message stating, quote, Louis Sauter, I love brother Frankie. Illil Boys, A90132 or 35. Most of this message, upon first examining it, seems pretty meaningless, but much of the Sauter family, including still many people online, speculate that A90132 is a zip code, possibly from somewhere in Italy, specifically a region in Sicily called Palermo as their postal codes range between 90121 and 90151. Others think it could be a license plate. On the other hand, it's pretty unclear who Frankie is or what the A at the beginning of the numbers means. Spoiler here is that we still don't really know where this came from, or who was pictured in the photograph or what any of the information means. But it doesn't mean the Sauter family didn't try to find out. They ended up hiring another private investigator who was not Tinsley, to go travel to Central City and look into the envelope's origin. But unfortunately, allegedly this PI just never reported back to the Sauter family, and they were unable to locate him afterwards. Resultingly, they did their own searching and investigative work, and the more they continued to dig, the more their belief was solidified 
that this photo very well could be a photo of Louis, and that he might still be alive. For this reason, this photo of this man who could be their son was added to their billboards that they had erected, but they had elected to omit any information about the photo's origin out of fear that Louis may have been being held captive and subject to harm. In an interview for the Charleston Gazette-Mail in 1968, George Sauter admitted that the lack of information in the case of their children had been hitting quite hard. He said, quote, We can't go any further. Time is running out for us, but we only want to know. If they did die in the fire, we want to be convinced. Otherwise, we want to know what happened to them. But despite all of his efforts, George Sauter died the next year, in 1969, and was never able to realize his hopes of learning what happened to his children. Jenny and her surviving children, including Marion, George Jr., and baby Sylvia, continued to search for their siblings, all while Jenny attended to the memorial garden over the site until her death in 1989, also, like her husband, without realizing her hopes of finding out what happened to her children. After her death, the family took down the billboards that were positioned along the different United States highways and elected to scale back their investigative efforts, for the sake of their ages, and the years that had passed without answers. The theory that most of the Sauter family seemed to align with until their deaths was that the five children who'd vanished on the night of Christmas Eve in 1945 were abducted by members of the Sicilian Mafia, who may have been either trying to extort money from George Sauter or enact some sort of revenge. The family thus believed, according to my reading, that the children may have been taken back to Italy where their parents were from, and that if they knew what had happened to them, they avoided contact with their parents out of fear of further harm or retribution. To the family, the house fire was simply a cover-up for the abduction, and the largest piece of evidence that they had was this letter, which was believed to be from Louis. Sylvia, the youngest Sauter child, who again was only two years old on the night of the fire, recalled in an interview with the Gazette Mail back in 2013 that she believes her siblings were still alive after the fire and that she had often stayed up with her surviving siblings discussing what might have happened. She said to the Gazette Mail that escaping the fire was her earliest memory of life and that she experienced grief from the loss of their lives for a long time. Sylvia died back in April of 2021, but even her own children continue to honor the legacy of the Sauter children, just as their mother did. So, undoubtedly the story of the Sauter children never came to a resolution. Despite clues and circumstantial oddities, the truth about the whereabouts of the five children was never realized. The aforementioned circumstances surrounding the case turned the story into an international breeding ground for conspiracy theories, and yet, no movement was ever seen on the case, despite dozens of people continuing still to this day to look into things online. At the time when it was the most popular theory amongst the Sauter family, some newspapers jumped on the Sicilian Mafia theory and published stories about how the children may have been taken and possibly sold to an orphanage. The New York Times, for example, published a column linking the case to three other house fires in 1945, which resulted in the quote-unquote deaths of 11 children, alluding them all to being connected, all to being a conspiracy. However, I have to note to you that media sources like the New York Times 
neglected to mention many of the explanations for the strange circumstances that aggravated the fire and drastically hindered efforts to rescue the children on the night of Christmas Eve in 1945. I have also neglected to mention these explanations, but it was intentional. It was for a reason. If you look at different forums that discuss this case, there are many people online who conclude that the soldered children likely did die in the fire, and that there is no conspiracy related to the Sicilian Mafia. However, you can certainly find yourself down that rabbit hole should you choose. The point I want to make here is that the larger theme interwoven into forums and comment sections about the case where these opinions are expressed is that, at the time of the fire, and for years afterwards, original media sources were so biased towards sensationalizing the Sauter family loss that one's stance on the tragedy can change, depending on the scope of the information that a person chooses to read. For example, if you stopped listening to my show only a few minutes ago, you would have never heard about how the wrong number call that Jenny got on the night of the fire was actually just a misunderstanding, as Fayetteville police were able to locate the caller and confirm that she was just intoxicated and confused. You'd never hear about how in 2013, a family member who was not a surviving sibling reported that there is reason to believe George could have flooded his truck engines in his hasty attempts to start the vehicles and position them beside the house to rescue his children. According to this family member, and according to some of the reading I did online, this was a common issue in older vehicles, where the internal combustion engine of a car would not work properly because it was subject to too much fuel and not enough air for the reaction to take place. I'm no car expert, but again, according to my reading, flooding an engine can happen in carbureted engines when you're repeatedly trying to start it, or when you're switching it off too soon after trying to start it in the cold. If you stopped listening a few moments ago, you would have never heard that on the night of the fire. There was a man who had scaled the Sauter family household and snipped their phone line, confusing it for the power line, in an attempt to steal a block and tackle set, which is effectively just a heavy-duty piece of pulley system equipment. He, of course, denied having anything to do with the fire, because burglary is a much lesser charge to face than arson, especially with multiple deaths involved. But this thief's confirmed presence at the house, notably his scaling of the telephone pole to cut the wire and even his messing with wires in the first place, as well as his subsequent arrest, explains the latter being mysteriously displaced from the side of the house. And although, again, he denied it, and there is debate about this online, his presence there could also possibly explain the fire itself, as it's quite odd for there to be a burglary involving a thief messing around with wiring the same night as a devastating house fire, and for those two things to not be related. His presence may or may not also explain the quote-unquote balls of fire that the truck driver had seen being thrown at the Sauter family roof the night of the fire. Although, again, he only admitted to trying to steal the block and tackle set, and he was never charged with anything aside from that theft, who knows what he was really up to that night. Depending on the scope of information you consume about this case, you may or may not come across conflicting information about the Fayetteville Fire Department Chief Morris and his shady involvement planting a beef liver at the scene. As I had mentioned, to me, him doing this doesn't make any sense, and according to other articles I read, reportedly he did find fragments of the children's remains and elected just not to tell the family. 
This information directly conflicts with the reasoning for which other reports say he planted the beef liver, to mitigate the expenditure of investigative efforts both for logistical and emotional reasons. So certainly both pieces of information about him, either finding remains and not telling the family or not finding remains and planting a liver, can't be true at the same time. As well, given the age of the case and the ways in which information can get distorted through time and while passed from person to person, it's difficult really to make any sort of determination about which, if either of these two possibilities, is the truth. Further, you would have never heard about how the woman who owned that hotel and claimed that the Sauter children checked in one night while accompanied by four adults of Italian descent had never actually met the Sauter family or the Sauter children. Her eyewitness testimony from that evening was simply based off of the grainy, poor-quality photos available in the newspaper of the Sauter children and on flyers around West Virginia, and thus, she structured her recount of events based on that. According to law enforcement, her story was never viewed as credible, and if you listen to my episode about Ronald Cotton, you'll know exactly why. And it's because even when there are much clearer recounts of events from witnesses, they can still often be considered unreliable. To play devil's advocate, there is an argument to be made that the reason for her story not being taken seriously even for a moment could be related to a seemingly total lack of investigative effort from the beginning in this case, which is also something I mentioned. Every jurisdiction of law enforcement in this case let the Sauter family down. The FBI didn't get involved, and when they did, eventually after years, it didn't last for very long, nor did it lead anywhere and the state police called their case hopeless. Local law enforcement proved to be useless to the family, as they declined even to invite the FBI, let alone conduct more than a cursory search of the scene. So it's hard to say if the reason there are truly no answers is simply because of a lack of investigative effort, or simply because there's nothing to investigate. Ultimately, the convoluted nature of the case, peculiar circumstances, and the gravity of loss involved took a very large toll on John, the eldest Sauter child. All of the hypothesizing and back and forth, watching his parents dedicate their entire lives to finding answers, traveling all over the country in what seemed at times like a goose chase to uncover the hidden truth that they insisted was there, it was painful. John Sauter ended up living his life while not really participating in much of the family's own investigative efforts, nor really even speaking about the case because of this. Some deem his behavior as suspicious, mostly substantiated by the story he initially told about making it up to the attic while it was on fire to rescue the children, only just to change that story later on, if you recall. But, I will say to me and to some others online who I read comments from, it seems to be that John's way of grieving the loss of his siblings was to minimize the lingering effects, exacerbated by the vastly unfortunate inability of his family to make peace with their circumstances. John Sauter, like many, conceded that his own siblings likely died in that fire, and according to my reading, it seemed like he urged his family to try and move on as best as they could, to no avail, and so he had to take control of his own peace. Undoubtedly, there are many avenues of theories to explore within this case, and each is both substantiated and undermined by different components of the night's events. I've tried my best here to give you a comprehensive overview of the tragedy of the Sauter family, 
but I'm eager to know what you think, as evidently many of the family members still alive even today feel some semblance of grief and the original surviving family members all passed without resolution. If you want to discuss this case or any others, you can find me on Instagram at crimopediapod or you can visit my website at crimopediapod.ca. There, you can find all the source material that I used for this case, and I urge you to check it out, because there are quite a few rabbit holes once again that I fell down while looking into this one that I think you might find interesting. If the Sauter children did survive the fire of 1945, none of them would be alive today. However, I will put photographs that were published in newspapers and any others that I can find on my website so you can look at them. Whatever the case may be, I can only imagine the magnitude of grief suffered by the Sauter family. It was evidently extremely deep and complex, and manifested into their life trajectories being completely altered by the events of Christmas Eve 1945. Now, almost 80 years later, it certainly still confuses and grapples people given that. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Crimopedia podcast. That's all from me today, everyone. Don't forget that you can always suggest a case to me at crimopediapod.ca. And again, I am curious to hear your thoughts about this one, because there is so much debate about it online, and truly, there are compelling arguments for any scenario that you can possibly dream up about what happened. But that's all I have to contribute, so stay safe. Be careful about the media you read online and make sure to vet your sources. I certainly do my best to try to. And I'll see you here for the next episode on March 15th, 2024.